And so we crucified five things on the cross. And this is the important reason for us establishing the glorious church. Uh, that uh, to confirm the church as king, there needs a to be the cross. And so fundamentally, the church uh, needs to always have repentance with it. Deep repentance must rise up in the church. And if I talk about repentance, it's going to take me way too long. But look, it's not just repenting of like famous sins. Like we are not sinning because, or we are not repenting simply because of sins that we've committed. But a, a normal life, of, a normal Christian life, wouldn't even have to repent of those things because they wouldn't do it, right? Like, like for example, at the end of Paul's life, what does he? How does he describe himself in First Timothy three fifteen? He says that uh, he is the worst of all sinners. Remember, 1 Timothy is right before Paul's martyrdom. And yet he calls himself the worst of all sinners. What great sin did he commit that he would say so? No, it's not that he committed a sin. But rather he's seeing the root of the evil that is deep within his spirit. And last time I was in Honduras, I preached out of Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk prophesies about the root of all evil within man. That if you live by Babylon, these desires start uh, get formulated inside of you. The desire for possession, the desire for security, the desire for fame and honor, the desire to conquer to, to, for pleasure, and the desire for idolatry. These five desires are the source of the desires of the flesh. And so as you live with a deep relationship with God, you realize that these are very deep sources of all evil. And you understand that this is what brings about sin. And so look, most people won't even recognize any of these five things as sin. Why is it a sin to desire to possess something? Why is it a sin to desire security in my life? But the more holy you get, the more you live by the Holy Spirit, the more you realize that these things all come from the desires of Babylon, which is polluting your life. And so listen to my sermons from Habakkuk that I did in Honduras last time. And as you go deeper into repentance, you start to repent of these deep evil. That because of these evil things, even at the height of Paul's um, spirituality, he says that forgive me of, of being the worst of all sinners. Uh, when you get to that point, that means that you are almost at the cusp of glorification. 
And look, the problem is, the reason why the church sees sanctification and glorification as a theory is because they, the church has yet has failed to listen to the word of the fundamental root of all evil. And they're unable to see models uh, of faith who have already dealt with this evil. The reason, one of the reasons why the early church was so powerful is because in the midst of this deep um, repentance, there are so many models of glorification within a church. And it's the same thing in our church. These models of glorification are starting to uh, be established. Ah, the Bible is true. Ah, there truly is sanctification and glorification. Ah, God has predestined man to be holy and blameless. It's true, isn't it? And so in the church, you'll see these models. And so look at how important the truth is. That the truth needs to be properly declared and the church members receive it. And, they, and when, as they repent based on that word, they will be sanctified and glorified. Amen? And so I pray that you would soon recognize these things as evil, as sin, and be able to repent deeply. For the past 33 years, what have I been doing? As I said, I eat the word, repent, obey, and bow down. So pastors, this is the danger that we run into. We eat the word in order to preach, and so it becomes religion. No, we do not eat the word to preach. Because the word of God is a spirit and life. When it enters into me, it leads me to repent. It chases away the life of darkness within me. And above all else, I become an obedient man. And I bow down and prostrate myself before God. Okay, there's a difference between prostrating and praying. Prostrating means to enter into the glory of God. And so the inability to pray is a very serious issue. Especially as a pastor, this is a very serious issue. I am not a pastor who emphasizes time. Now, of course, while I was being trained by God, I prayed 12 hours a day. For several years, I prayed every day 12 hours. It's not I was forcing myself to fill 12 hours, but rather in God's glory, it led me to pray for 12 hours. As I draw near to the throne of grace, I would pray like that. And so the reason why you're unable to pray this way is because you did not eat the word, you did not repent, you did not obey, and you did not prostrate yourself. And even now, even now, as busy as I am, I pray six hours every day. Why? Because I'm entering more and more into glory. And so the limitations of my flesh, the limitations of my understanding, I break through these things. 
And so that's why you need to make it a principle to pray in a loud voice. As I said on the first day, that it is the strategy of the great prostitute to make you to pray in silence. No, nowhere in the Bible does it talk, describe prayer as prayer in silence. Prayer is crying out. You need to cry out, pastors. And so break down your flesh by crying out. You need to be able to pray, brothers. Not legalistic prayer, not ritualistic prayer, but prayer that the Holy Spirit leads. You need to be able to pray in the Spirit. Amen. Amen. And so as this starts to become part of your body, you'll become easier to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it In fact, it gets to the point where if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, it's difficult to live. That without the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you, you cannot move. You are tortured. You need to be able to maintain the fullness of the Holy Spirit at all times. Amen. And so I pray that you would have deep repentance tonight. Now, then let's turn to Ephesians. Amen. Okay, the word is very important. Let's eat the word in faith. And first of all, I'm very happy to be able to have this conference with, with all the uh, pastors of Central America. And we're going to meet again in June and again at the end of this year. So please continue to come, amen? And so we talked about the five things that are crucified to the cross, and we talked about the three S's this morning. And this is really important um, uh, doctrine of Romans, Romans 6 and 7. This is the essence of Romans 6 and 7. And so it's important to put the self to death every day. That way we can live by the relationship of Jesus, church, creation. And so we have, we talked about uh, being dead to sin, being dead to uh, the world, but, uh, that we have been victorious over the prince of the air. And we have talked about the desires of the flesh, about the relationship of what the flesh and the, the body and the mind wants. And we talked about how there are three different words used in the Greek Bible for the word mind. And we talked about the setup of the, of, of the spirit of man. And we are currently continually translating things into Spanish. And this is a really important sermon. And so look, what, does, what is theology? Theology is the study of God, right? But can you define God? Can you define God or not? And so if you think that you are studying God, it will drive you mad. It will drive you crazy. And that's why in, the, in Korea there is the saying, 
that in the first year of seminary, they became a pastor. In the second year, they became an elder. In the third year, they became a deacon. And in the fourth year, uh, when they graduate, they leave the church altogether. And this may seem like a joke, but at the same time, it makes sense. Why? Because theology isn't about studying God, and yet all seminaries think that it's about studying God. And so because they try to study God, they separate life. If you separate life, it's death. Life is integrated. Life must come all as a whole, right? They split it up, split it up into Romans theology, Colossians theology, Galatians theology. That's why the Word of God dies in them. And so when they go to seminary, they die, they go crazy. And there are many, and there is a seminary even at our church. It's called Envy. But we integrate the life in this seminary. We do not separate it. We do not dissect it. And so look. Why does this happen? It's because of the chip of the great prostitute. For the past 2,000 years in Christian history, the chips of the great prostitute has been implanted into seminary. And so, even though there is a reformation, it's not perfect. And the church still remains powerless. It's because life is not at work. This is really important, brothers. You need to be able to eat this truth as life. Remember, and so ultimately, what is theology? It's not study of God, it's study of man. And look, uh, ever since in America, from Joel Osteen, this positive thinking is taking hold of Christians all over the world. That, hey, if we think right, we will win. That, uh, that they think that the mind of the man is power. No. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that man alone has no hope. That there is no one righteous, not one. Do not put hope in mankind. That man only has hope when they hope in God. And so, uh, there is no hope in, in man. There is no hope in this world. And so, what does it mean that your faith is getting stronger? As you'll see in Mark 11, 22, it says, you have God's faith. And so let's talk about faith here also in, verse, in chapter 2. But so what does it mean that you have good faith? It means that you have no hope in yourself as man. For example, if you look at um, 1 Kings 18, right, we see Elijah challenging the 800 prophets of Baal. And, and so whichever God answers by fire is the true God. And so it'd be great if fire we could catch 
But what does Elijah do to his altar? He pours 12 jars of water over it. This is crazy, right? Fire needs to burn and yet he pours water over the altar. What is he doing? He's proclaiming that he has no hope in himself. That he's even getting rid of the possibility that dry wood would catch on fire automatically. And so why is your faith so weak? Because you keep putting hope in your own ability. You keep putting hope in your own potential. That, oh, I can do this. I know how to do that. That's why there's no faith. You, when you are completely dead to your own, to hope in yourself, you enter into the Sabbath rest of faith. Amen? And so those who live by their own methods, they don't need faith. They just live by their potential. They just live by what they are able to do. And so look, no matter what kind of life you see, no matter what kind of sick person you may see, it's not me who heals them. I cannot do it. I have no potential. God has to do it. And so whether they get healed or not, I don't give up. Because I never had any potential. It's God. God has to do it. This must be your faith. And so let's go into Ephesians. Verse 4. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, and so it's saying that we are rich in grace, in glory, and in mercy. And so these are all uh, characteristics of the glorious God. God gives us grace, right? It is a gift. Everything that God gives is a free. It's not because it's cheap that it's free, but because we cannot purchase it. That's why it's free that there's nothing in the Bible made out of your works. And so that's why he has to give us grace. And if we want to see this pure grace, we need to look at Galatians. And so why does the power of the uh, gospel uh, disappear in your church, never appear? It's because you get rid of that purity. You need to live fully relying upon the grace of God, living by what God gives, but instead, you keep living by your own methodology. You keep living out of your own potential. That's why you keep trying to ensure yourself. That is seminary. Right? You try to understand the gospel with your mind and try to make your own gospel. And that's why the gospel gets corrupted. But God has mercy on us. And so this word mercy is the description of the mother's womb. And so meaning that it is, life is provided. And so when, without God's providence, we cannot live. And so this is the mistake that many churches make. They try to receive medication from God. We do not need medication. We are already dead. And so what does a dead person need? He needs life. But you keep trying to receive medicine. Remember, everything that God gives is life. 
if a child doesn't receive the mother's milk, if the mother doesn't help him, that child will die. Right? Until, until a child, well, the moment that the child is born, and until he gets to three years old, he needs nourishment from the mother. And so, uh, in order to make the um, milk, uh, it needs three drums full of blood. What does the Lord say to us? He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. We need to eat his, his food as life. But the church keeps trying to receive medication. Medication is for the sick, but for the dead, they need life. God gives mercy on us, has mercy on us. He gives us His Holy Spirit. And so what does it say in Hebrews 4.16? To draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we can receive grace in the opportune time. And if we don't have grace, if we don't have mercy, we cannot live. And so this, God is rich in this mercy. And so what this means is that I do not need mercy because I want it or need it, but rather I, the Lord gives us mercy because He knows that without His mercy we cannot survive. And so, and yet many of you think that you do not need that mercy and you just keep trying to receive medicine from God. No, we need to seek mercy from God every day. Lord, have mercy on me that without you I cannot survive. To, and so in other words, to David, this is what it means when he says he relies on God. I rely on God. That if he doesn't rely on God, he cannot survive. So let's say that I lean against Sergio like this. And how can Sergio be sure whether I'm relying on him or not? If I move away from him like this, then see, he has relied fully upon me. Again, if I empty and he doesn't fall, that means he's not relying on me, he's relying on himself. And so it's a life that relies fully on God. That is mercy. Amen? And so rely on God alone. And because of that mercy, as it says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And as I said on the first day, uh, the word of Colossians, that when we are in Christ, we are with Christ. And so these five truths work in us. That when I'm in Christ, I'm with Christ. But here there's really important of why it says with Christ. This preposition with in Greek is the word shrin. And so the early church was always meeting with the Trinity in a dynamic way. And so whenever you pray, brothers, at times you're meeting with the Father, at other times you're meeting with the Son, other times you're meeting with the Spirit. And because the early church was experiencing this clear distinction, they used separate um, 
prepositions to the various aspects of the Godhead. Pros is only to God the Father. Wherever you look in the Bible, there is no uh, preposition pros to anything else except for God the Father. To Jesus is always the preposition shin. It never says pros Jesus. It never says dia Jesus. To Jesus is always the word shin. And this word shin means that you are the same essence. That we are the same essence with Jesus Christ. Through the merits of Christ, all the merits of Christ belong to us. And so ultimately, we need to always be prost towards God, facing towards God. This is the most important thing. And if we are facing towards God, as we have fellowship with God, uh, we will feel that we are of the same essence. That everything that Jesus Christ has done, we come to realize that it's also mine. And the Holy Spirit uh, confirms these things inside of me, in the Holy Spirit. And so these prepositions have been used to specific Godheads to show the dynamic of the Trinity to the early church. And so Trinity is not a theory. It's God, it's uh, the God that we continually meet with. And so uh, the great prostitute has polluted this truth and by using the word Trinity. And so if we just understand Trinity according to the, uh, the great prostitute, it, it does nothing for us. All we do is think of God as a three-headed monster. And so we do not know what the Trinity means. And so there is no one who has ever been able to accurately, accurately um, define the Trinity. Why? Because Trinity is not a definition. Trinity is how you relate to God. Trinity is how you have fellowship with God. At times when you pray, you pray to the God the Father. Other times as you're praying, you, you, Jesus comes to you and confirms that everything he has done is given to you and the Holy Spirit leads you so that you can break through all your limitations. And so you're meeting with the tri Trinity God in a dynamic way. And so I, am, I abide in you and you abide in me. And the Holy Spirit abides in me and Jesus abides in me and God abides in me. Then I'm in God's presence. I'm in Jesus' presence. I'm in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This relationship is how we live. I talked about this when I preached out of first John. And so, this proposition will be Shreen. Why? Because it's to Christ. And so we died with Christ and we will live with Christ. As it says in verse 6, and raised up with us, with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places, so Jesus' throne is my throne. This is historical fact. Again, Jesus' death is my death. Jesus' burial is my burial. Jesus' resurrection is my resurrection. Jesus' throne is my throne. Jesus' return is my return. This is an important essence to Colossians. That this is historical fact. 
And because it's a historical fact, every day in Christ, this is happening in me. And so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, 15? That I die every day. Because it's a historical fact. And because I die every day, I'm revived every day, renewed every day. The same applies to us. If we are in Christ, then we die every day, and we live every day. Okay, in the cells of man, there is a cell of death. And so when these cells, there's a signal of death, every 15 days it dies. And when that cell lacks the information for death, what is that cell? That cell is a cancer. And so this cell needs to have the DNA of death in it. And because God created the universe according to this principle. And so that's why in Isaiah, it says that the creation is renewed every day. And so every 15 days, your cells are completely renewed. That your, all your cells are completely renewed. It's the same thing with your spirit. That you need to die every day and be renewed every day. And so renewal is normal. You should not get hardened. Why do you get hardened? Because you become religious. If you live a life of religion, you get hardened. You do not change. It's not God, but people. That you do not need God, but you need money. You don't need life, you need medicine. That's evidence that you are hardened. That there is no change, there is no growth. Your prayer becomes weak, the glory disappears. Then understand that you have become religious. Is Christianity a religion? No. Christianity teaches about life and death. That if you do this, you will die. If you do this, you will live. That is what the church teaches. The church is not an organization, it is life. If you become religious, it becomes an organization. You are, church is life. And if it's life, it must change. Life can be polluted, life can die. That is what the church is all about, amen? So let's continue. Verse seven. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so, this principle of life doesn't just only apply to us now, but forever. And so even on the day when his kingdom comes, this principle of life will continually apply to us. And so when we pray powerfully from the expression of this principle of life, it means that oh, he is powerful in life, that he is powerful in the force of life. Ah, God's life needs to be powerful in us, amen? That if we are powerful in the life of God, nothing can kill us, amen? Let's continue. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And so, these amazing five historical facts, right? Is teaching us how these things began in our lives. 
It began through salvation. That's what verses 8 and 9 is saying. And so for by grace you have been saved through faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That our salvation begins this amazing life force. And it is not of yourself, for it is the gift of God. And so this word, uh, Greek, is tutos, for and, this, tutos. Tutos is connecting to the sentence before it, meaning that what is the present, what is the gift? And so what is the gift in this verse? Is faith the gift or is salvation the gift? If you look at it uh, grammatically speaking, this tutos, which is a relative pronoun, is relating to what? It's relating to the noun faith. Is faith the noun or is salvation the noun? Right? This word saved is a verb. And so, the gift needs to be faith. And so why is this so important? Because many uh, missionary organizations, their uh, entire being, they, they, uh, they interpret, all the commentaries interpret this tutas towards salvation. Then what's the problem? The problem is if salvation is the gift, then spiritually what happens is you build the tendency to try to make your own salvation. This is where positive thinking comes. And so that's why pastors like Joel Austin in Texas come. Because they think that they can make faith themselves. No. Faith is, first of all, a gift from God. That through that faith, we receive salvation. And so without faith, there is no salvation. Amen? And so, in faith, we are saved. That is the gift. And so if you think about it, uh, if you think that the gift is salvation, then you try to make faith yourself. And so look at it. Look at it practically speaking. All these churches, they think that, oh, out of their commitment, out of their devotion, out of their works, that they have good faith. That they make faith out of their effort. That, oh, if I fast 40 days, that means I'm filled with faith. No, because faith is also a gift. You need to have a relationship with God. And whether I do something or not, if I have my relationship with God, I'm always filled with faith. Why? Because it is a gift. And so look, because it is a gift, when God gives, all we have to do is receive. But why are you do you fail to receive? Because you need to have empty hands in order to receive, but you are holding on to so many things. Why? Because you think that you have to make your own faith. And so you keep trying to hold on to things. No, you, all you have to do is have empty hands. Lord, please give. If your hands are empty, God will fill it with gifts. Amen? 
And so primarily, this word tutos is connecting gift to faith. And so with that faith, you are saved. And so this is really important from the context of seminary, of, of theology. And so look, in Habakkuk 2.4, it says the righteous will live by faith. And so if you do not recognize that faith is a gift, right, with this prophecy from Habakkuk chapter 2.4, is used, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.22, and Hebrews 10.30-something. Uh, but these three things... Romans focuses on righteousness. Galatians focuses on faith. And Hebrews focuses on life. And for this reason, in faith you receive righteousness and that righteous life living follows. And so when these three things are united, that to that person we say has assurance of salvation. But if you lose sight of the fact that faith is a gift, you keep trying to live your life to prove your salvation. And there are many uh, denominations in Korea like this, right, that we have to do community service that we need to be ethical, we need to be moral, that we need to offer lots of sacrifice. I'm not telling you not to serve. You do it because you meet with Jesus and out of that love, that's why you serve your community. But that is not proof of your salvation. And so this is really important, brothers. And so it's not me making my own faith. If you keep trying to make your own faith, that is religion. You keep trying to live your life to prove your salvation. No. Life follows when you receive righteousness in faith. So it's not that I'm trying to live that life. No, if the branch is connected to the tree, then it receives all the nourishments that comes from the root and that branch bears fruit automatically. The branch doesn't say, oh, I need to bear fruit so I'm going to suck all the nourishments of the root. No. And so faith is grace of God. And so for this reason, if you recognize this, you always empty yourself. You do not hold on to anything. You live by what God gives because it is a gift. And so if your Christianity is heavy, that is a problem because all we have to do is receive the gift from Jesus, from God. And so all I have to, all, I don't even have to ask God, give, 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 give me this, give me that, give me money, give me power as if I need to steal from God in order to receive, to live. And so if you constantly say, give, give, then repent and pray like this. It's okay, I don't need Lord. I don't need anything. All I need is you. 
in all my life, I have never asked God uh, for money out of my need. I have never asked God for power. I empty, I would rather empty myself, keep sending out, keep giving away, and live by what God gives, amen? This is really important, brothers. And so, we need to understand that faith is the gift. Faith. And so we cannot live by works. So moving on to verse 9. It's not a result of works because faith is not a result of works. Salvation is not a result of works. All we do is receive the grace of God. And so no one can boast. We boast in God alone. And nothing can sh prove my own righteousness. For example, it's like this. Let's say that one of our church members buys you a very nice car. And then one pastor got jealous of me, envious of me, and asked me, Oh, pastor, how did you get this gift of a good car? What should I say? Oh, it's the grace of God. Then he asked me again. Then what should I say again? Oh, it's the grace of God. Let's say he asked me a hundred times. I'm so tired now. And so I say, try to be a pastor like me. Then that is wrong. You have failed. Even if he asked a thousand times, even 10,000 times, it is the grace of God. It is the grace of God. And I'll give a testimony of what happened in Korea once. Okay, a pastor, he didn't have a large church, but he saw another, he saw another pastor driving a very nice car, and so he got envious. And so he asked his church members to buy him a Mercedes-Benz. He kept begging, he kept making them and telling them. And so finally they gathered all the money to buy the him a used Benz. And so he got so happy he started driving that car. And then there is a really small car, the Spark, right? Like the, the Chevrolet Spark. And so he crashed into that spark. But what happened to that spark? It would be destroyed, right? Because it's a tiny car. And yet who died in that accident? It was the pastor. And so this is the end result of a pastor who forgets grace. God is a living God, amen? So let's continue. So it, it's not out of works. We boast in God alone. So verse 10. And so this word for, which is the Greek word gar, gar. For we are his workmanship. And so verse 8 and 9 describes that we are not saved through works. For we are his workmanship. This workmanship is the Greek word poeo. 
Pu'eo could be translated as to make, but it's not creation, like right, like uh, like to create something, but rather it's the action of that creation itself. And for the most part, work is usually used the word ergon, which is like the work, right? That history, the action. And just as this entire universe was created by God, salvation is also the work of God's creation. And that's why in Isaiah it says that he created uh, salvation. And so it's all the work of God. It is not our work. This is really important, brothers. And so we do not live by works. So we should not live a life that tries to live out works of legalism. Because God's principle for it, principle design for creation is like this, that God is the one who works. Even today, God is not resting and He's working today. And so what does it mean that we are being good Christians? is we are continually asking God to work, allowing God to work, allowing the Holy Spirit to work, allowing angels to work. It's not us who does the work. It is, this is the order of God's creation. God is our God who works for us, our God who fulfills for us. God is the one who works. And so if we want God to work, what do we need to do? We pray. Through our prayer, we make God move. That is who we are. Because when God created Adam, what was his purpose? His purpose for Adam was to meet with God, to have fellowship with God. We have been created as loving partners with God. And so that's why when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he didn't work. He just enjoyed everything God created. And so it's the same thing with pastoral ministry. If a pastor lives by his works, he will die. And so if you cannot have fellowship with God, you cannot have ministry. You need to have fellowship with God in order to allow God to work out your ministry. That is how God created you. There are some amongst you who will not understand what I'm saying. What does it mean? What do you mean there, I do not live by works? It means that I do not live by my strength. What does it mean by living by God's works? It means that everything is done by what God gives. And so whoever works, works out of the strength that God provides. 1 Peter 4, uh, 13, that speak as God speaks. That God, that I can do all things through God who strengthens me. The Bible says that I work according to what God gives. Why do you get exhausted in your ministry? Why do you get burnt out? Because you try to live by your works. You live by your own works. No, man does not live by works. It's all a grace of God. It's fully about fellowship with God. And so there are many of you who uh, really cannot hear these words. 
but it's about your being, your existence, that this is how you were created to be. That is why this is, uses the word poeo. And so, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so even this good works is again not creation, but it's talking again the act of creation. It is the result of that action. And so he has, we are created for good works. And so what is goodness? Goodness is a character of God. And so God created us, and the purpose of that is to be like God, is so that we can be imitators of God. And so man, out of their efforts, can never imitate God. Why does God send souls to your church? To make a good man? To make a nice man? To make a rich man? To make an influential man? To make a thieving man? No. To make you, to make a godly man. And so no matter how effective you may be as a pastor, can you make a godly man? No, you can't. And so that's why, pastors, you are not living your life based on works. And so, when it says the office of pastor in the Bible, it's not talking about your actions. It's not talking about your works. But you respond in faith to what God gives. For example, let's say you wake up in the morning, and I bow down before God. And God, the, all the blessings that He has given to the church, the anointing of prophecy, of apostles, of evangelists, and of teachers, I send it forth to the church. And I bless all my church members of the anointing that God has given. That is my responsibility. Just like the Old Testament, as the priests get up to fill the oil, to fill the oil and to burn the incense and to change the bread of the presence. This is my office. It's not about your actions. You were not created to work. God has created every single man to be like God. And that is the act of creation, right? The creation act. He is the one who works it out. He is the one who moves. And then you will fulfill his purpose. And so this is where we make so many mistakes. We think that I need to, uh, I need to, take care of my church members. No, there are only two things that can touch spirits of men. It's either God or demons. And so if you want to touch the spirit of man, that means either you become God or you become demon. It's one or the other. Which one do you think it is? That's the terrifying thing, isn't it? That's what happens, truly. And so that's why in these kinds of churches, the members lose spiritual wildness. We, they become religious ethical, religious morals. 
and so they don't rely on the Holy Spirit. They do not live by the anointing that God pours out. They cannot live by what God gives. It's like a tiger caged in a zoo. That tiger cannot do anything. That tiger, all he can do is eat the meat that has been thrown to him. And when people come, roar really quietly to show people. And it's like a caged bear. Right, there was many bears in the history of Korea, but there was one thing that, one bear that had a lot of popularity. Why? Because this bear was in the circus. And so because he was in the circus, he was good at making shows for man. And so many people would throw lots of good food for, to that bear. That's what you, happens to your church members when you try to control them. Because you keep touching them, they lose that wilderness. They cannot engage in spiritual warfare. They cannot break through in faith. Because I keep touching them. And so look, look at how important this word is. Man should not live by works. Man lives by their existence. God is the one who works. And so to he who believes, do you know how what will happen to him? That if God does not move, they do not move. If God stops, I stop. This needs to become part of your character. That if God doesn't do, then I also don't do. If God doesn't give, I don't try to make it out of nothing. Okay, a long time ago, there was a mathematician named Gauss. And when he was young, he was very smart. Ever since he was young, he was very smart. He went to a fruit store. And he saw a lump of cherries that looked so tasty. And the fruit vendor saw this chubby kid. And he said, taste, taste this cherry. And so he... And, so, and he didn't taste it, even though the vendor kept saying, taste it, taste it, but he didn't eat it. And so finally the vendor took a clump of cherries and put it in his hand. And so he received it with his, he received it with his shirt and he went home and the mother asked him, why didn't you eat it when the uh, vendor told you to taste it? He said, if I taste it, I could only have one or two. But because he, because the, <laughs> because the vendor gave it to me, he gave me an entire cluster of cherries. Look at how smart he is. And so if you live by your works, you're only receiving one or two. But we need to live by the gift of God, what he gives, right? And so if you live by works, that is how vapid your church will be. You don't live by your works. Don't live by law. Don't live by religion. You need to live by what God gives. Live by what God does. Then he'll give you this clumpster, this cluster of cherries. Amen? And so let's continue. And so God, which prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so prepared beforehand is another word for predestined. And so what is God's predestination from before time? Is that he created us to live in the good works of God. That is his predestination. 
And so God works for us, and because we receive that, we become pure and blameless. I cannot be pure and blameless on my own, but because I live by His works, I am holy and blameless. And so put to death the law. Put to death legalism and religion. Look at the Catholic Church. They think of salvation as works. And so that's why they have to do good works. This is the pollution of the great prostitute. No. God, that is not our relationship to God. God did not create us to work. He created us to be His loving partners. He created us to have fellowship with Him, not to work. Amen? And so that's why when He came to this earth, what did He say to us? He said, do not worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Do not try to maintain your life, your survival through your works, that I'll be responsible for you. And so what does he say in Matthew? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All we have to do is seek his righteousness, receive his righteousness, and meet with him, have fellowship with him. Why is your life so ruined? It's not because you do not have money. It's not because you, it's not because people do not acknowledge you. It's because you are not meeting with Him. If we keep meeting with Him, then we will never fail. Amen? Amen. And so if you want to bless your church members, have a church that is filled with the presence of God. And so just be a church that is filled with the presence of God. As long as your church members are meeting with God, they will not fail. Their lives will not fail. And so let's continue. And so let's continue from verse 11. Oh, it's only 11. And so I said that we would have ministry time after the sermon, but the buses have to leave at 12. And so that's where my heart breaks that we are all in different hotels. But I believe God will heal you all, amen? And so let's continue. So from verse 11 to 22, Okay, now we're seeing what is the church. That with the, for to be this glorious church, we have crucified five things on the cross, means that we need to live by grace. And that in that grace, verse 11 shows us what will happen to us when we are in that grace. Okay, around AD 64, uh, the church in Ephesus becomes almost completely Gentiles. And so in 11, it talks about Gentiles. It talks to the Gentiles. It's directly addressing the Gentiles. Now, this is something that doesn't need explanation, right? But, so let's continue. And so remember, it says Gentiles in the flesh. That there was uh, the, them who were called the uncircumcision. And so they were called the uncircumcision. And so it also talking about uh, people who are outside Israel, 
outside uh, strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. And so what does that mean? It means as a Gentile, they had absolutely no hope at all. But before Jesus, before Jesus came, at least Israel had hope because they were the children of God. And so what do the bad Jews say of the Gentiles? Do you know why God created the Gentiles? To uh, send them to hell. Sorry, oh, wait, well, I, sorry, I think, I think I translated that wrong. Uh, uh, to be, uh, I'm not entirely sure what he's saying here. Ah, uh, to provide fuel for hell, right? To provide fuel for hell. That's why, that's why Gentiles were created. So bad Jews make this joke that why did God create the Gentiles? To provide fuel for the fires of hell. And so, this is a joke, but it's showing how hopeless Gentiles were. So verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so these are all Hebraic, Hebraic uh, expressions. What does it mean to be far off? It means you have no relationship, you are cut off. But now, by the blood of Jesus Christ that you have been brought near means you have been united, you are one. And so how close are you with him? That he is in me. And so how important is it to believe in the propositions of truth? If you do not have faith in the power of the blood, to this man, he will feel, feel God far away. And so, for example, it's like this. Let's say I pray, and God is outside of this universe, right? And the, uh, the most farthest star that we have discovered is more than 5 billion light years away. That means that even if I were travel at the speed of light, it would take 5 billion years to get there. That's how big this universe is. But God is outside this universe. So that means he's what? More, 800 billion light years away. And so this kind of person, when he prays, how long does it take for him to receive an answer to his prayers? Uh, 16, oh, six, one trillion, 1.6 trillion years, light years. Because that's how far it is, right? 800 billion light years to get to God and the 800 billion light years for the answer to come back. That's what happens when you do not believe in the power of the blood. But when you do believe in the power of the blood, then you whisper to God because He is so close to you. He dwells within you. How amazing is this, is this impact? I use this word very often, that from God's perspective, the fact that He has entered into your heart, you need to understand what God is sacrificing. He is sacrificing His omniscience. 
que se, que se puede definir por mi culpa. Se puede cambiar el grupo por So from God's perspective, this is great risk. This is a gamble. Because if I imprison him in my heart, he cannot move. And so from the perspective of God entering into me is great impact. That even with this risk, he comes into me. Why? Because love. That love is the only answer. We cannot understand. What does it mean that he forgives us? It means that he is giving up on his right on his justice. And so even a king of a nation that he cannot take back what he says in an official capacity. How much more the honor and dignity of the creator God. Okay, he said, has declared in his word that if you sin, you'll be judged. That is God's justice. And yet he cancels his justice to forgive you. What does that mean? That means he is uh, giving up his dignity. And on another aspect is that God is omniscient, omnipotent. And so when he forgives you, what does that mean? That means he is omniscient, so he knows whether you'll sin again or not. And if so, if he knows that you're going to sin again, then how can he forgive you, right? He cannot forgive you, right? Imagine that. And so the fact that he forgives you, what does that mean? That means he gives up his omniscience to foreknow whether you will sin or not. So he gives up, he determined to not know whether you will fail, whether you will sin again or not. This is salvation. How amazing is the salvation? How amazing is the salvation that God has given? Though it's free, it's not free because it's cheap. It's not free because it's worthless. No, because He has given this great impact to us by giving up so much, by sacrificing so much. And so that's why hell must exist. Many people question, how can a loving God create hell? But imagine, if you reject this great salvation, what other result could happen? This is the love of God, the love of God that comes to you and sacrifices so much for you. And yet, will you refuse that love? Will you reject His love? Rather, say that you cannot believe. That's better. Because you cannot believe, you do not do. This is He who loves us. This is who He is. And so how close have we come to Him? That He would give up all of His dignities to love me. He who has drawn near. How amazing is that? You are amazing beings, aren't you? And God who has done this is also amazing. Hallelujah. And so let us praise God who has given us this amazing love. Lord, we love you. Lord, we truly love you. You are our everything. Amen. Amen. Verse 13. 14. 
the reason why he has given this impact to us is to create his glorious church. And so he has to deal with the problem of the church in Ephesians, which is this division between Gentiles and Jews. Remember, uh, as I said on the first day, the church was built on the foundation of Jews. This was the way of things. All the churches in history was established on the foundation of Jews. Why? Because Jesus coming to this earth is fulfillment of the currents of the Old Testament. And so only Jews had the promise. And so the moment that these Jews confirmed Jesus as Messiah, this Old Testament was embodied. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the original event of a gospel is that Jesus came to this earth and died and was resurrected. Why is this so important? Because after Jesus ascended to heaven, this truth was immediately established his church. And this original gospel in itself is not what's so important but rather that it is, the it is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so, the moment that Jesus ascended to heaven, already uh, as the church is established, uh, it is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So listen carefully. that um, before 1920s, the earliest uh, uh, codex we had was about AD 100. But then they discovered uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they are Bibles written in BC 20s. And these Bibles were almost exactly the same as the Bibles we have from 100. What does this mean? That the church was built on the truth. And so, the moment that uh, the truth was proclaimed, the church was established. And so all over the world, wherever they go, they may worship in a different way, and yet we are all moving under the same truth, one truth. But now look at Buddhism. Okay, after the Buddha died, the fastest canon that was written was more than 500 years later. And so, wherever Buddhism goes, it mixes with the original religions that was there. And so it all gets corrupted, it all gets twisted. But God's church alone, the moment Jesus ascended to heaven, immediately all the truth of Old Testament and New Testament was established. 
And so that's why the church alone is the way, the truth. If you do not acknowledge that, then you are not the church. And so when the Antichrist appears, this is what he's going to say. It's not the way, the truth, but rather that there's salvation in all religions. We need to give our lives to reject this fact. Amen? They will acknowledge homosexuals. No. Homosexuality is a sin. They will go to hell if they practice it. And we need to understand that homosexuality is a spiritual matter, not a physical matter. Understand? And so, on top of Jews, the foundation of Jews was the church built. But in AD 64 is when Gentiles and Jews start to split in the church. There are many reasons. But the reason why the Gentiles and Jews needed to bring about one church is fundamentally, see look, the church was built on the foundation of Jews and that current of, the, uh, of that faith needs to continually flow, send forth. And so there should not be separation. And Paul worked really hard to keep them united. And so in order to be a glorious church, the Jews and Gentiles need to be one man. So look at verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This too is talking about Jews and Gentiles. And so in his body, he has taken down the wall of division. And so there's no reason to make distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And going beyond that, he has um, destroyed the law. He is not saying that he is rejecting the law that the Jews have. The problem with the law that the Jews have is it became legalism. In other words, it became the spirit of legalism. And so God, had, our Jesus broke that down. But these two things grow and to make one new, new person, new creation. And so the Gentiles and the, and the Jews are one. They are one new man. And so that's why our, our, our Zoe ministry puts so much emphasis on Israel. And we are continually praying for a remnant church to be established in Israel. That's why we're having this conference at the end of August. All the Gentiles need to respect and honor Jews and pray and help the Jews to reclaim their birthright. We need to be united with the Jews. Amen. And so when we have the conference in Costa Rica in June, where we invited uh, young adults, Jewish young adults. We're going to invite them and be one with them. Amen? So let's continue. So verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And so, God has, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has broken all the dividing walls. Same thing with Central America. I'm grateful that you are patriots and you love your nations. But in Christ, you are all one. Honduras, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, all. You are all one in the kingdom of heaven. We are one. You and me, we are one. Amen. When I come to South America, uh, all the time as I'm preaching, to, I've been preaching to Koreans, right? But now, all of a sudden, when I stand on this altar, at first I get scared. Do you know why? Because Koreans have small eyes, right? And so I cannot see their eyes. But when I look at you, I see your eyes, and they're so large. And so, you know, we may look different, and yet in Christ we are all one. Amen? And so all the dividing wall has been broken down in his body. Amen? And so all the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. And so this is also the reason why we want the remnant church, like the prophecies of Isaiah, and also especially when you look at Revelations 21, that who is this end times entrusted to? It's entrusted to the two witnesses. And uh, Apostle John received the prophecy of Isaiah 4.12 and expanded on that in his revelation. How did he expand it? That there are two uh, olive trees and two candles. And that's why uh, the, 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 the logo for Zoe Ministry is this candle. There's two candles. What does the candles represent? In Revelations, what is the candle? The candle is the church. And so why does it say two candles? Because it is the united church of the of remnant in the end times. Who are we united to? It's the two uh, olive trees. What are the two olive trees represent? It represents the two witnesses that will be established over Israel. The two candles are the church, the Gentile church. And so that means that in these end times, the remnant church will be one with Israel. And so that's why fundamentally we have to do the ministry of the remnant. Because in these end times, the church must unite the remnant. And so there's not great significance in one church doing well. Why? Because you cannot uh, keep this spiritual warfare on your own. That's why I'm doing Zoe Ministry. Because Zoe Ministry is a unity of churches. It is the two candles. And so I'm uniting all the remnant churches all over the world. We are all engaging in 24-hour intercession together, and we're all being one in one truth. And so we will not fall back to the devil. This is important, yes? And so this one new man will be fulfilled in these end times. Hallelujah. So verse 17. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is the Jews. And this peace is shalom, which means complete victory. And so in Christ, that whether it's Jew or Gentile, we are perfect victors. Hallelujah. And so to this united church, verse 18 talks about what they are. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So in the Old Testament, only Israel could draw near to God. But now, in Christ, whether Gentile or Jew, they can all go, draw near to God. Why is this possible? Because whether it's Israel or Gentile, they have received the righteousness of God. What does it mean to receive righteousness? It means you have no sin. If you have sin, you cannot draw near to God. And so because we have received this righteousness, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have received this righteousness. And so now we can draw near to the throne of grace. We have the right to meet with Him. And so what is the joy of, self, of righteousness? It is the right to draw near to the King. And so if you can draw near to the King on this earth at any time, then you will be a man of great influence. Right, look at the book of Esther. Even the queen, even the queen cannot draw near to the king without his permission. That if he, she goes to the king without his permission, she will die. And yet, 24 hours, 3065, for no reason at all, we can go near to God. This is grace. This is God's righteousness. This is the joy of God's righteousness that we have. That He, without rest, is waiting for you. That come at any time. You welcome, welcome, welcome. So let us draw near to Him. Let us draw near to Him. Amen. Verse 19. Uh, and because we can draw near to him, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer aliens. We are no longer strangers. We are saints. And what are saints? They are the righteous of the Old Testament. In Hebrews 12, 20, talks about the um, assembly of the righteous. Hebrews 12 says that these righteous ones, these assembly, prays for you. That they are cheering you on. Why? Because your perfection confirms their perfection. And so because uh, we, uh, the, 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 the community, the multitude is one body, uh, just as, you know, one arm is healthy means your body is healthy, our perfection confirms their perfection. And so Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, or 24. And so you being wholly blameless is not just a matter of you as an individual. It is, it is confirming the perfection of the kingdom of heaven as a whole. 
And for this reason, the righteous ones are cheering you on. As it says in Hebrews 11, and so, where is who is cheering you on today? Who wrote Ephesians? Because it's Ephesians, it will be Paul. Paul is leading a cheerleading squad of righteous ones. And Paul is in the front. And he says, Oh righteous ones, let us cheer them on. To the various pastors from all over Central America who are gathered in Costa Rica. That let's cheer them on. Three, three, three. Uh, three, three claps, three claps, three claps, three claps. And so in this way, the heavens are cheering you on. And so our Lord, He prays for us. He intercedes us. The Holy Spirit helps us. And God provides everything without limit. And all the righteous are cheering you on. And so we cannot fail. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. So let's continue. And we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are one family. Hallelujah. You need to believe this. Amen. Our root is in heaven, not here on this earth. We do not live as the world wants us to live. Amen. And so now verse 20 to 22. And so in this relationship, the church was built. And so what we need to understand that the church is not bound to this earth. It's not a building. The church is in the relationship of all that righteousness of the Old Testament going until Jesus' return. And so believe, brothers, that the church isn't just some building on top of a land. No, all the history of 3,000 years all the truth that is built, that the apostles built, and uh, uh, on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and also with in relations to the heavenly hosts, that is what the church is established on. And so Matthew 11 says that the gates of he abyss will not swallow it, because we have this relationship with all of these things. Even if we had just God alone, it would be more than enough. But we have all these other relationships. That is what the church is built on. And so are you starting to see the church? Don't try to know, but try to feel. Ah, oh, look at how amazing this church is. And so it's not about how big your building is. It's not about how many church members you have. Ah, this is what it means to be the church. That even if I have only one member, 
if it's a, a church, if that one member is built upon this current, then the, uh, then the powers of hell cannot overcome it. Then they have the gates to heaven that they can bind in heaven and close in heaven. This is the church of God. This is the church that you are pastoring over. You are not just average people. And that's why God has such great interest over you. And that's why he sends a pastor like me to tell you how great you are, how noble you are, and how to prove where your greatness comes from in the Bible. And so bless the people next to you. Wow, you are amazing. Now that I understand, you are an amazing being. Wow, you are an amazing being. Hallelujah. And so now the conclusion here. Verse 20. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And so this is a summary of what Paul later writes in Ephesians 4.11. And so without the system of prophets and apostles in the church, it becomes a building without a foundation. And so no matter what building it is, if it's built on someone else's land, there's always uncertainty. Because let's say that the owner of the land says, hey, get rid of your building, then I have to get rid of it. Now, of course, in Matthew 16, it says that uh, the church is established on the rock. And so in Matthew, uh, the foundation is Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it's also Peter. This is uh, Matthew's expression of the church. But now uh, in Ephesians, it's talking about the system of the church. That system is the foundation. And so if the church doesn't have this spiritual system, I will say in chapter 4 clearly, if you do not have the system of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, then the church has no foundation. So how uncertain would that church be? And so we must have this system of the church. We must have all the uh, doctrines, uh, the doctrines of the seven doctrines of the church that is written in Paul's epistles. They all need to be in the church. And so in the church must flow the spirit of prophets and apostles. And on that foundation, there's nothing that Jesus cannot do for us. And we become members and fill that building. And so I'll talk about this more in depth in chapter 4. And so look here, verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
And so the church itself is a holy temple. And this holy temple means the holy of holies. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, uh, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was ripped in two. This curtain was so strong that two elephants could pull at opposite ends and it would not tear. But through Jesus' death on the cross, the curtain was split in half. This means that the way to the Holy of Holies has been opened. Hebrews 9.20 clearly says this, that by His blood, we have now entered into the holy place. So we can enter into the holy of holies. So when you worship God, when you pray, no matter what service you may do, you, it is all in the holy of holies. You are in the presence of God. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 22:25 that uh, you will sprinkle the atoning sacrifice and meet with him in the mercy seat. That through Jesus' holy blood being sprinkled in the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle has been cleansed, and so without fear we can draw near before his throne of grace. And so boldness, confidence, means the freedom of speech, that I can say whatever I need, I can say whatever I want, that whatever it is, I can speak with God. Amen? And so what does it mean that you are His holy temple? It means that God's holy presence dwells within you. And so when we say glory, that means that radiation of holiness. It means that holiness is radiating. That is glory. And glory was originally only attributed to God. Holiness is only attributed to God. And yet that holiness has been given to you. It has been given to you. Be holy for your Lord, your God is holy. I have never given my glory to anyone, but I give it to you alone. Never to an angel. No angel, no archangel has received the glory of God. Angels cannot look to God. They cannot look at the glory of God. But you can see Him face to face. And so there are these seraphs that are before the throne of grace. And seraph, is, the meaning of seraph is red. Why? Because the river of fire flows from the throne. And so this fire, this color of that fire gets embedded to that angel. And all angels have two pairs of wings, but this angel has six pairs, or six wings. And this is an angel that's always before the throne of grace. And so how holy would this angel be? How pure would this holy angel be? And yet even this angel uses two wings to cover his eyes, two wings to cover his feet, because he cannot see the glory of God. And he has to cover his unpure uh, feet. And yet, to you, God has given you this glory, to look at that glory, to look at his glory. Be holy, for I am holy. 
That is why you are his temple. That is why angels, uh, angels uh, serve you. When you look at First Peter, he, he says that the angels cannot understand that no matter how they see it, mankind is so weak. And yet God pours out this amazing blessing. And in Jewish tradition, there is this saying, one, a God sent an angel to, the, to mankind to see how man is doing. And the angel came back and gave his report to God. God asked, what's your report? And the angel said, God, I think you made a mistake in giving your glory to, the, to man. And so immediately, God lays his hand on that angel and he says, I do not regret. And, that, and the moment he touches the angel, the angel bursts into flames. And then he sends another angel and the angel comes back. The angel's trembling in fear that, Lord, even if you were to burn me up, I think you made a mistake in giving them your holiness. And so God touches him and he burns up into flames. Sends a third angel. The angel gives his report. He's so afraid and so he's trembling in fear. But he says, God, I cannot lie. You're, you giving them holiness is a mistake. And so he burns up. And so, and so whatever it is, God does not regret giving you his holiness. God does not regret giving you his glory. And so God who has, risen, who has given us this glory, how can you turn away from this God? Can you, will you trust this God? Amen? And so let us repent of our unbelief. Let us trust in that God. Why? Because He trusts in us. He believes in us. He has made us into His temple. He radiates His holiness in us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lastly, verse 22. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And so what's the difference between holy place, holy temple and dwelling place? Okay, whenever there's no warfare, where does the king reside? He resides in the palace, right? That is the holy temple. But now when there is warfare, where does the king dwell? He dwells in the tent, right? At the front lines. And wherever that is, that is his dwelling place. And so when he uses the word holy temple, what's the focus? The focus is on the radiation of holiness. The radiation, the eminence of that glory. That when the king is seated on his throne, no one can move without the king's decision in that kingdom. Why? Because king's mag majesty is there. But now there's a war. And so the king has to move to the dwelling place. So what is this dwelling place? This is the irradiation of the authority of the king. And so what do you call the place where the president of the United States lives? The White House, right? Now let's say that that king, that president came to my house. 
then what does my house become? My house becomes the White House. It's the same thing. Where is God? He's in the headquarters in the heavenly tabernacles. But at the same time, where else does he exist? He dwells in me. So you are God's dwelling place. You are God's dwelling place. And so his authority and power radiates from you. As in the headquarters, the history of man is determined. But at the same time, that decision is made in you. And so for this reason, when you proclaim, it comes to pass. When the church proclaims, God brings it to pass. Why? Because it is happening in the same place. Believe in this authority. Believe in this authority. You are God's dwelling place. God dwells within you. You are God's White House. You are the dwelling place that determines the history of mankind. And so shall we not pray powerfully before our God? Proclaim this faith. Proclaim this power and authority. Declare your majesty. Declare your dignity. Lord, I believe in this word. Lord, give me the faith to receive this word. I believe that I am your dwelling place. I believe that I am your holy temple. Beloved servants of God, believe in this glory. Believe in this glory. Believe in this glory and authority. Pray with a loud voice. Pray with a loud voice. Declare your majesty to the devil. Declare your majesty to the devil. Devil, do you know who I am? I am God's holy temple. I am God's dwelling place. Faithful heavenly host, open the gates of heaven. Open the gates of heaven. So believe in the word of Amos 3.7 that God does not work without first revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So God is speaking to you right now that the fate of your country rests on your lips that when you proclaim the kingdom of heaven will move. Amen? That the fate of your country is in your hands. 
fate of your country is dependent upon your battle. And so you fight against all the, all the pollution of the devil that when you declare, you will move the kingdom of heaven. And so I bless you like the prophecy of Malachi that Lord, give them the law of your truth that when their lips open, may your lips move. That when you, when they proclaim, may your kingdom move. That on your lips, I establish my kingdom. That by your lips, I establish my kingdom. Open your lips, open your lips. That when you declare, my kingdom will move. this place. Lord, more powerfully upon this place. sentado en el trono.
Church of Central America, of Latin America, be united, be united. At this time, move in your power and authority. Let it flow forth, let it flow forth in holiness. May it be a powerful fire. Devil, you cannot come against us. Bonne nuit. 